Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Why is there so little knowledge about Armenia? Because um, there are not a lot of us. Yeah. I think we have 6 million Armenians in the world, wow. which, uh, you know, if if the you know and it's it's interesting because Armenians have always talked about genocide, but there's more to Armenians than mm-hmm. genocide. It's all the contributions we have made before and after. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think it's funny uh, when I got in the wine world. Armenians, we say we invented everything, right? <laughs> um, and and it, it, it's gotten to a point where it's almost a joke. So I remember when I when I started when I was at Hanzel, and even when I was at some state. Uh, I was like, you know, Armenians, we started wine. And they go, yeah, 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 of course you did. You guys did everything. <laughs> well, in 2005 or six, they discovered the oldest winery in the world, archaeological dig, oldest yeah. winery in the world from 6,100 years ago in a cave in present-day Armenia. That morning, it was before the iPhones. I mean, the iPhones had come out, but I had like a non-iPhone. That morning, I had text after text and message after message. I remember I was working the market in Arizona, and everyone said, Dude, you weren't kidding. Armenians invented wine. It's all over National <laughs> Geographic. I was like, I told you. Um, instead, the deep down, I was like, oh my God, we invented wine. Now, 6,100 years ago, it wasn't Armenia. It wasn't Armenians. It was the people who became Armenians, right? It was the tribes that became. Yeah. And right now, Georgia and Armenia are both like, oh, we're the oldest, mate. Listen, we don't, neither of us existed 6,100 years yeah. ago. And who knows? Maybe we were cousins. Maybe it was, you know, who knows? But the oldest modern winemaking facility they have found in the world is in present-day Armenia. Uh, it's the Arani cave complex. And they also found the oldest shoe there. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of a cool little spot. And I went there in May because I was like, I have to go see this place. And, you know, from the capital of Yerevan, it's about a, give or take two hour drive, mm-hmm. hour and a half, hour 45, two hours, depending on what road you take, yeah. how much traffic there is, you know, animal crossing and stuff. And you finally get there. It's a cave. Mm-hmm. And they've been digging this cave and they found these amphoras. Um, and some of them are still intact and some of them are broken. And in, in the bottom of one of the amphoras, there's a little red pigmentation. They found grape seeds. They did DNA analysis on the grape seeds to figure out what varietal could this possibly be. It was it even grapes? They look like grape seeds, so they did this analysis, and the seeds came back as a varietal called RNA. RNA goes by RNA Noir. It goes by RNA. Okay. They still grow that today in Armenia. Amazing. But what's interesting about winemaking in Armenia is you had uh, Armenia had a dynasty. Mm-hmm. Um, Armenia had um, the the uh, Armenian Empire yeah. at one point for about 175 years was larger than the Roman Empire. How so you that? have this this <laughs> this this area where the country got bigger and it yeah. got smaller and then it got to nothing and uh, then for a while it was the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, and um, now you don't have the Ottoman Empire. You have Turkey, mm-hmm. and you have. Georgia and you have Azerbaijan and you have Armenia and you have all these other countries that at one point were uh, Greece, right? Yeah. Cyprus, that were part of the uh, Ottoman Empire. Look at USSR. Most people are like, what? USS what? No, Russia 
was USSR. And that encompassed a lot of countries, including Armenia. Yes, 15 of them. Yeah. <laughs> and Armenia was the first country in 91 to say, see ya. I'm sure nice. they couldn't wait to get out of from under and, the boots. Uh, yeah. But it was interesting because, um, you know, you, you have this country that has at times been ruled by Christians and then by Muslims and by Christians and by Muslims. Armenia was the first Christian nation in 301 AD. Armenians were the yeah, first Christian. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot of people are like, so Armenians, like Muslims? I'm yeah. like, nope, not that there's anything wrong with that, but nope, the first Christians. And the story of how Armenia became Christian is pretty cool. It's pretty funny. I don't know how much of it is true, how much of it is myth, but the story is what they told us. Mm -hmm. And the story was Gregory the Illuminator came back from his travels and he was friends with the king, Dirtot, who was the king at the time, and they were friends. Uh, but during his travels, he found Christianity, and he converted to a Christian. And his king's like, hey, we're about to go uh, sacrifice this animal. And Gregory said, not me. I'm done sacrificing. I'm a Christian. And the king's like, are you out of your mind? You can't say no to me. If I say we're sacrificing this animal, we're sacrificing this animal. Can't do it. He goes, don't refuse me one more time. He goes, can't do it. He goes, that's it. Send your ass to jail. And the prison cell they sent him to, they call Horvirop, which is this, uh, now there's a church in this little complex. Um, it's about, I don't know, 500 meters from the border of Turkey. And um, it was 20, 30 feet down the ground. Uh, uh, they dug a cave and that's where he was imprisoned. Well, the king gets sick 12 years later and nothing can cure the king. His sister has a dream um, a vision that Gregory came out and cured him and performed a miracle. And they're like, is that guy even alive? Because we sent him there and we forgot about him. So they go check and lo and behold, he's still alive. It wasn't a miracle. The locals were giving him food and water, right, to keep him alive. And um, they bring him out. Now, of course, he's a Christian, so no grudges, right? So he goes and bam, performs a miracle. King is saved. And the king thanks him by saying, Armenia is going to adopt Christianity, and that was in 301. Wow. That and so the story. that's the story. So in 2001, they celebrated the 1700th anniversary of Christianity, mm -hmm. and the Pope, Pope John Paul II, mm -hmm. went. Nice. So you have the Pope and the Armenian Catholicos together are presiding over celebrating the 1700th anniversary of Christianity. It's kind of cool. Oh, yes. Even if you're not religious or not, some of this stuff is pretty cool. Like if you look at it as a historic aspect. Mm -hmm. When people say, well, what do you go see when you go to Armenia? Churches. Yeah. Some were pagan temples. They converted to Christian churches. Then they got converted into Muslim mosques. Then they got converted back into a Christian church. But, of course, an earthquake knocked it down for about 300 years before they rebuilt it. But you can go and you can walk and you can touch the walls. and Pretty cool. And the people, intensely loyal, proud, passionate. Absolutely. So special. You're you're growing up. They always said, "Okay, you're Armenian. Don't forget that. You have to give back to the Armenian people. You have to give back to your own people. That's the only way we're going to survive." Mm. And so that was beat into me more—not physically, but it was beat into me more that you have to do something to give back to your people than anything else. No matter what, come hell or high water, you got to do something good for your people. And I think Armenians do. Armenians are like, okay, well, I've, I became successful. How can I help out? Because mm -hmm. in order for us to survive and keep telling our story, we got to continue. Got it. So, to 
to that end? Are you involved in the community in some way? Are you supporting some causes? Or? Yeah, so um, it's... Uh, I grew up in, in the Armenian community in Southern California, mm -hmm. Boy Scouts. Yeah. Um, it was Boy Scouts of America, but we had our own troop, Troop 150. It was boys and girls together. Mm. Um, I went to Armenian private school in, in Glendale. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know how to read, write, and speak Armenian. Um, and uh, now with the whole wine thing is interesting because um, I knew some people who were making wine. And the wine that I remember, Armenian wine from 25 years ago, yeah. it was sweet. They call it semi-sweet red wine. Why? Because when Russia was handing out its tasks to all of its countries, oh, they looked goodness. and said, it's almost like the scene from uh, um, Animal House. Yeah. Like, we're going to call you Flounder. So they looked and said, Georgia, You're the wine you guys region. are making wine. Yeah. Azerbaijan, give us the caviar. Yeah. Armenia, brandy. Brandy. All right. That's it. Right. And, and uh, now there's uh, Noya. Or Noy. Noy. N-O-Y. Noi mm -hmm. is a, a brandy factory that took over the old Arad brandy factory space because huh. they moved to a new space. Um, but, you know, Armenia was brandy makers. So whatever wine they made, it was leftover stuff that was like, oh, I just want to make a little bit of wine, and it's sweet. Yeah. So. Sorry about that for years. Yeah. You just answered my question. Well, um, the only other thing is they're like, all right, each of you have this task, but make sure 50% comes back to Mother Russia. Right, um, so Russia really controlled what Armenia did in terms of winemaking, and they didn't, but they perfected brandy. Um, by the way, slightly shocked to see it at Total Wine in San Mateo. Apparently, Arad is now imported. Oh yeah, well you know who owns Arad now? No, Pernod Ricard. Oh, <laughs> hey, but you know what? You got to you got to give if the French are willing to buy a brandy factory. I was going to say that in because, and of itself is. Yeah. Because a lot of people like brandy, cognac, total region, right? Mm -hmm. The brandy is so good in Armenia that they're like, let's buy them. And they're like, we'll take the investment. Come on and help us make this better. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, Armenian brandy is world famous. But Armenian wine is new compared to brandy. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Now, so one thing I learned when I was there is the oak barrels. We use French, American, some use Hungarian, yeah. right? You know what they use? Caucasian oak. It's oak from Artsakh. So it's specific species of oak that's unique regionally. How does it compare to French oak? Um, it's similar. Okay. But it's different. Of course. Right? Um, um, but it's, it's, it's what they all use. So they, they still use amphoras, right? Because that's their history. Yeah. Um, but even other than the oak, and the, you have to realize the varietals they're using are varietals no one's heard of. Well, they have to be. Yeah. Arani, Korbeni, Voskehat, Chilal, Tozot. I mean, the, the varietals they're using in Armenia, and they're, they're, not, they're not just making uh, dry red and dry white. Mm -hmm. They're making sparkling wine. Oh. Yeah. And they're making sparkling. So, so uh, I became friends with Vahe and Amy Kushkarian. Mm -hmm. um, when I was there in May, and they make sparkling wine under Kush, which you can find out here. And uh, they make the Origins, which is a regular bottling, and then they make the uh, vintage Blanc de Blanc, which has a black label. Mm -hmm. Well, in October, I went back and we went to the vineyard where they're sourcing their fruit. Here's a village, 500 meters with the border of Azerbaijan, active war zone. 
Occasionally Jesus. they shoot each other. Wow. Who are the harvesters in Armenia? The women. Of course, I remember the baskets. Yes. Oh my God. Now, the, the women are harvesting the fruit. It's so funny. The women are harvesting the fruit, and they're, and they're not like 15, 18, 20. No, no, they're older. One of the women was like, I don't know, she looked like to be in her 80s, at least. Yeah, no, I. It, and she's wearing camouflage. Yes. She's wearing camouflage oh, wow. because 500 meters away, People will shoot at her. Yeah. Right? So, and, and she has a smile on her face because she has a purpose. She has a purpose. She's contributing to that vineyard. The, 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 the village owns that vineyard. And that is a sustenance, sustenance for the vineyard. It feeds the vineyard. So the women harvest the fruit. And they, what do the men do? The men grab the basket of fruit, like, oh, look at all this hard work I've done. And they go load it up. And it's the funniest thing. The women are the one in the, the vineyards. But... You have Voskehat, which is a white varietal. Mm -hmm. You also have Arani, which is a red varietal. Mm -hmm. These vines are 70 and 130 years old. And, and you probably using... don't think of them as No, <laughs> it's funny because when I asked, I was like, oh, how old is this? He goes, oh, this was this is a new vineyard. This was planted in the 70s. Mm -hmm. I was like, new? Okay. Mm -hmm. You're north of 50 now, mm -hmm. but it's new. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, they have these vines. They don't even know how old they are. They, they, the best they, guess they can do is 130 because that's how... Back the the village notes go, yeah. and this entire vineyard is the food source for the Kush sparkling ones. Wow. Why? Because the the fruit would not ripen enough to make red wine and white wine, so it ripens to you know twenty one bricks twenty twenty one, and they're like sparkling perfect. And they know how to make sparkling wine. Yeah. Vahe had a restaurant in San Francisco. He made wine in Italy. Uh, he has winery, winery friends all over the world. Got it. And so Vahe has been involved in a lot of stuff. So he's, he, he, it's not his first rodeo. Oh, sounds like it. And, um, but what's interesting is he's finding varietals that, they, that don't exist, that they've heard of. So they'll go to a village and they're like, yeah, we have some things planted there. And they'll go figure out what it is. And then they'll, they have a nursery. And uh, then they're planting those varietals. So all over was, Armenia. How was that Blanc de Blanc? It's fantastic. So it's funny. So the, the Blanc de Blanc um, with a black label, uh, 2013 vintage. Um, we got Jenny. I, I proposed to Jenny on top of uh, this monument called the Goscot or Cascade. Mm -hmm. um, and it's 572 steps up. And you have an amazing view of Yerevan. And what's funny is they don't really do proposals in Armenia like we do here. A proposal is if I if, if you and I see each other and I'm like, oh, she's kind of cute. I'll talk to some friends. I'll talk to my parents. They'll talk to some of your family's friends. And we come to your family's house with mm -hmm. uh, chocolate and cognac. And now they don't do it to that level, but they'll still date. But I don't ask you. My family asks your family. So when we proposed, when I proposed and she said yes, um, she wanted to let these two girls know, like, oh, we just got engaged. I was like, shh, they don't do that here. Because the girls were like, huh? Like, where, where's the rest of your family? Where's the, <laughs> where's the 500 people that are supposed to follow you? And um, we ended up having a bottle of the Blanc de Blanc to celebrate our engagement in Armenia. At the bottom of the steps at a little restaurant called Wine Republic. Oh, my goodness. So, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really, really amazing. Sparkling wine. And um, the, the red wine and... Uh, um, the RNE that they're making right now. There's a label called Zulal. Um, okay. uh, there's another one called Kur, K O O R. Okay. Uh, the labels are fascinating, but I'm I'm in love with these wines because 
they're not expensive in mm-hmm. in the expensive world of what yeah. we see in Napa. Um, you know, the Kush Origin Sparkling is twenty dollars. The Vintage Blanc de Blanc is thirty five. Mm-hmm. You're hard pressed to find decent champagne for under fifty dollars. Yeah, no. And sparkling wine in California can be fifty, sixty, seventy dollars a bottle easily. So, um, and it's different, and they're gonna make a lot of it, and. You're not going to show up to someone's house and they're like, oh, yeah, I've already had that. They're like, what is that? So it's a conversation starter. I'm just amazed how an industry that has such a long history and was so rudely interrupted by the Soviets actually is recovering now, it sounds like, and producing something so noteworthy. Globalization. They all live on iPhones and Facebook and Instagram. They communicate. Um, Armenia... Last summer, well, actually not last summer, 18, August of 18, had the Velvet Revolution. Mm-hmm. That's when they overthrew the who was the president who was set to become prime minister. Yeah. Because a lot of the power presidential powers were given to the prime minister, and he was like, uh-uh. The people were like, no. This is bullshit, and we're not going to have any of it. 21 days of peaceful protest. Oh. And finally he said, okay. And the people won. That's and now they have a new government. Oh, well, a Time magazine had an article about that, that it was unprecedented. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, look at what's going on in Hong Kong. They've been protesting for how long? Months now, right? And what happens? Every time they get too loud, the government comes, starts cracking a whip, beats people up, kills people, imprisons people. Yeah. Didn't happen in Armenia. Hmm. And now they have a new government. And everyone is hopeful because, uh, you know, the corruption of the taxes and all that, so all that went away. They have a centralized system. There's a lot of uh, professionals from the diaspora that are moving back to Armenia and helping run things differently. So it's, it's a beautiful country. It's the people are amazing. Food is awesome. Uh, and it keeps popping up on all these Top 10 places to go in 2018. Top 10 places to go in 2019. Top 10 places to go in 2020. Every year it's hitting these top, you know, places to go. And the hardest part about getting to Armenia is like a lot of great places like Vietnam. What's the hardest part about Southeast Asia? Getting there. Yeah. Armenia, same thing. Yeah. You can fly out of LAX. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of flights that go to Vienna, Doha, Paris, um, Moscow, and then they yeah, fly so get yourself to, to so the you gateway get, city. Yeah. Yep. And then as long as you're in one of those, then you can fly south. And Armenia. there's a direct flight from some city. There are direct flights from Moscow, from Paris. Air France has a few flights. Mm-hmm. Ryanair apparently started some new flights, mm-hmm. which everyone's like, Ryanair, they're a discounted carrier. Austrian flies from Vienna. Um, Qatar flies from Doha. Emirates flies in there as well mm-hmm. from Dubai. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, it's a it's a pretty pretty cool place. You know, they have a Marriott, which you know makes everyone comfortable because they're like, yeah. oh okay, American hotel. Yeah. Um, you can't find a Starbucks at all whatsoever. May I just say thank God? Yeah. I'm sure Armenians know how to make coffee. We do. We make real coffee, like the Turkish style coffee. Yes. Like you can stand we, a spoon. We taught them and everything of... they know. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Oh, I keep you mentioned Greece, so yeah. I'm just thinking. 
my big fat Greek wedding, you know, the whole, we invented everything. The show, like, it's, it's so, yeah, it's so funny because the, <laughs> in the movie, my big fat Greek wedding, the guy has a, the, the, the family has a Windex. Yeah. Uh, Armenians, we have what is, I don't know what, it, what it, 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 direct translation, ACU, it's jackass oil. And it's like this ointment, right? It's probably Neosporin and someone didn't know what it was. They're like, oh, just call it, you know, ACU and whatever oh, happens. Just, funny. oh, you cut yourself here, put some of this on. And they all had a little jar of it, you know, it looked like Vaseline meets, you know, Neosporin meets uh, Thres Flores, which is like a gel, but it has that floral smell. Um, but yeah, whatever happened, I'll just put some of this on. There's probably some bacon grease in there or something. My God, it's, it's, it's literally too funny. I feel like a lot of cultures have their own remedy, like in Russia, what is it, alloys, some kind of a concoction. Oh, Everybody's going to do still. And that went into everything yeah. internally and externally. Apparently, <laughs> just completely. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned food. Have to talk about food. Um, so you know, all the the vegetables and the fruits mm-hmm. are organic. Of course, because they how can't else afford chemicals, <laughs> right? That, that's what someone's like. Well, it can't be. I said, have you met these farmers? They don't have money to buy chemicals. Yeah. Um, and so. You know, you go to a restaurant, uh, and it's inexpensive. Eating in Armenia is really expensive. We went, we had, for it, for our standards, mm-hmm. we went, um, Jenny and I, we had uh, a bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. We had a couple appetizers, a couple entrees, coffee at the end, mm-hmm. um, a couple side dishes or whatever, and it was $22 US. Wow. And I asked someone, I'm like, God, it's so inexpensive. Yeah. Why? And they're like... Because it's supposed to be accessible. Everyone is supposed to be able to go out and have dinner. What a concept. You're not supposed to say, oh, I can't go out to dinner tonight. You know, do we have top ramen? No, it's, it's, and, and, you know, you have salads, you have a lot of vegetables, tomatoes, cucumbers, onions, a lot of eggplant. Um, and Mediterranean. Mediterranean. So, yes. you know, it's funny, uh, dolma and baklava, yeah. it's all the same, different names. Yeah. Um, a lot of pork hmm. and a really good pork. So a lot of barbecue that they call horobots. Horobots is barbecue. Yeah. Um, open fire, Ooh. grilled meats. So pork, then chicken, then lamb, beef. They also have great fish. I, um, I, I just thought lamb. So yeah. pork is surprising to pork, me. Pork is number one. Huh, and fish. Uh, they do have fish. They have a lake called Lake Sevan, and there's mm-hmm. a fish that's indigenous to that lake. Um, and so when you go up to visit Lake Sevan, which is an hour drive away, if that, 45 minutes, an hour from Yerevan, um, all the all little restaurants, they have like fresh grilled uh, fish, which is local to the, the lake. If you guys are not Googling Armenia right now, I don't know what's wrong with you, because as soon as this recording finishes, that's the first thing I'm going to do, because it sounds like a paradise. Oh, it's... You know, it's funny, um, went there for the first time. It's almost like, why did it take you so long? Yeah. So Armenia was part of the USSR mm-hmm. up until 91. Um, you couldn't really go. And there wasn't much to go there for. Yeah. But 1988, Armenia had a big earthquake. That's right. Uh, 91, they pulled away from the USSR. And 94, 95, they talk about the dark years, right? Mm-hmm. The war years. Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, were fighting with each other. And there were times where... You know, um, there would be no power except for an hour a day. 
So that's why they call it dark. Um, But the the parents and grandparents did a great job at making the kids not feel just how dark it was. Now, a lot of the kids from that era will talk about it, but they're not talking about it from their memory. They're talking about it from what they've been told. Because when you talk about someone who remembers it, they have this look in their eyes because they're visualizing it as they're telling you. The kids that are, you know, 15, 20 years old, they're just telling you the stories they've heard. So they don't have that emotion as much of, mm-hmm. oh, the dark years. But ask for the older people, they'll talk about it, how they did everything they could so the kids would not feel it. And so after that, um, they started really trying to invest, the diaspora, Armenian diaspora, really started investing in basic necessities, yeah. clean water, a power grid that worked. That's um, not dependent on Yeah. And a lot of Armenia, when it was part of USSR, when, when you, even today you'll see some of these buildings and you're like, what's that? Yeah. Uh, it was built to last 20 years. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff is Soviet era stuff sitting there. You know, the, the Soviet guy's like, all right, my budget's a million dollars. And you're like, all right, well, give me a hundred thousand, I'll make it happen. So you take a hundred thousand, then you tell the next guy, my budget's 900,000. He goes, all right, I'll take 100000 and goes up to the next guy. The budget's 800000 By the time it gets down to the guy who's actually going to do the work, budget's been rolled down to 400000 from a million dollars. And there's six people that each have 100000 They haven't done anything. That was the Soviet model of, you know, because it was all, you know, government, like, here's all you're getting this month. That's it. Yeah. Find a way to hustle. Yep. And so they cut so many corners building all these things. Um, they were never going to last. So now there's a lot of investment in Armenia. And um, the people are welcoming. Um, Big hearts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So first thing you should do when you land in Armenia, go to the museum, the Armenian museum. Mm. Learn about it. Because you can Google all you want, but until you're there and you're learning about it, you don't understand the context of. And then when you go to do the tours, Mm -hmm. hire a tour guide. Spend the money. Mm -hmm. Hire a tour guide and a car. It's not expensive. Yeah. You can hire a tour guide for sixty to eighty dollars a day. Wow. To come with you, an English speaking tour guide who will tell you everything you're seeing. Customary when you have a tour guide and a driver and you go to lunch, you invite them, they sit with you and you pay for them. Hospitality. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, it's and it's not I mean they can afford their own food, but it's the gesture of you welcoming them to the table. So um, yeah, super fun, super great. Yeah, it's that culture of food and hospitality that just permeates. It's, it's the DNA. Yeah. Well, one more wine. Yes. Um, I couldn't bear to yeah. throw the Herondel out. It's just not in me. It is so gorgeous. Um, and talk about the finish. Long finish. One of the best attributes in the wine is how long it sticks with you. It's like a really good friend or a good conversation that you don't want to let yeah. go. And it just sticks around just a moment longer. Yeah. It's like the Liz Toshes and the Gina Rose of the world. They make you feel good when you talk to them. You don't want them to go. Yeah. So. Well, this is obviously a very special bottle. I've been looking at it visually. You guys that are not listening, the label is not watching but listening. The label is different. It's black. 
So tell us about it. So um, Three Graces, the name of this wine. Uh, one thing that's always been constant with all the bottles of Clodoval from 1972 till today mm-hmm. is there's uh, uh, this little picture of the Three Graces, the Three Daughters of Zeus, joy, ah. splendor, and mirth. It's a statue the Gallette family had, and mm-hmm. they donated to a museum in Boston where it sits today. It's about a foot tall bronze statue. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've always been on uh, the label. So we're coming up with, here's a proprietary wine, a proprietary blend. The the, uh, Sapage will change year to year, the Mm -hmm. the, the varietal breakdown. Um, What do you call it? Well, every winery has theirs, right? There's Mm -hmm. Montebello, there's Insignia. Um, Ours is Three Graces. That's our proprietary name because it pays homage to the vision the founder had when when they started it. And, uh, you know, joy, splendor, and mirth, not a bad way to live life. No. So this is um, 2015. It's a blend of 54% Cabernet Sauvignon, uh-huh. 45 Cab Franc, 1% Petit Verdot. And um, uh, this comes from two of our blocks in Herondale Vineyard in the Stagsic District Vineyard. And uh, the vintage, the suppose will change year to year, but uh-huh. 2015, this is what worked best. And it's 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 big, but once again, Velvety tannins, smooth, long finish. So same blocks get tapped every year. And there's no variation there, or uh, yeah, it's about the, the same two blocks. Okay. Yeah. And they're from so the same. Oldest planting. It's just the location, the sun exposure, the yeah, the the the, the blocks butt up against the SLV vineyard and Fay vineyard. Okay. And Fay vineyard is very historic. Um, of course. Uh, in Napa Valley, and uh, it's uh, yeah, that, that that site gives us some really awesome fruit. Yep, velvety, silky. All sorts of adjectives pop to mind. This wine to me screams texture. Yeah, the Cab Franc. Yeah, there's no denying there's Cabernet Francs there. You know, to me, Cap Franc is a little bit like Pinot Noir in the sense that if it's good, like really good, it's great. If it's bad, you don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah. It has to be great. There's like no middle ground. Yeah, it's, um, no one ever says, ah, that Cap Franc's okay. Mm. It's either great or or not great. So yeah, you're right. Same thing with Pinot. (laughs) I always, I, I have an analogy, but it's not very politically correct. I always say, Cabernet Franc is like a redhead. <laughs> I love it. It could be really beautiful or really not. And yeah. uh, I was at a wine dinner and I said that. And this gentleman goes, well, my wife's a redhead. Is she really hot or really not? And I said, actually, I'm not talking about your wife. I said, but if you look like uh, Opie, you prove my point. <laughs> and he laughed. And I was like, ooh, I dodged that bullet. Mm-hmm. But... You know, I think we need to laugh a little bit. Oh, absolutely. No. People take things too seriously. Exactly. Um, you know, it's so funny to me, Herondell is such a showgirl. There's this voluptuous nature and just sexy and in your face. This wine is a lot more intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you put the maturity gates for this wine at? Like 15, 20 years? I'm hoping. Yeah. It's in my cellar lay down for a while. Uh, um, yeah, I'm hoping. I'm Based on some of the older, I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate to taste some of the old Clos de Balls mm. um, from 72 
till current, mm -hmm. um, maybe a couple of vintages here and there that we've missed that we just don't have a lot of. Um, but and even the seventy-two, I never would have tasted. But we happen to have a bottle that ended up in Psalm three. And the one thing I said when I was handing the bottle over, I told the director, Jason, I said, make sure I get some of that damn wine. And so I, they saved a little bit in the bottle for me. Nice. And so I was able to taste it with Ted Henry, our winemaker. How so cool we're sitting that. at uh, Premier Napa Valley at the auction, and they were tasting, and he comes by and goes, I have the wine. So we tossed out whatever was in our glass, and we each poured whatever was left in the bottle between the two of us. Mm -hmm. And we're watching the auction, sipping on 1972 Reserve Clodoval. Once again, memories, right? Charmed life you do lead. Yes. Yeah, I, I uh, am very blessed. Is there anything, any downsides to your world? Sure. I mean, there's life. Yeah. Life is not always easy. What yeah. we portray out, you know, yeah. uh, we're surrounded by people when everything's good and happy, but when we're yeah. not good and happy, we retreat. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I've always had a positive outlook. Some people will look and say, oh, you know, you lost your father at a young age. It must be, it must have been horrible. Yeah, yeah you know, it was, but there's some good things you learn from that, yeah. which people are like, how, how can you look at that? But in life, bad things happen. You learn from it, yeah. right? Um, so, I don't know. I think my life is pretty charmed. Um, you know, I, I have a beautiful daughter. Um, yeah. uh, I have a beautiful fiance. Um, I live in Napa Valley. I get to travel the world and meet great people. Yeah. Drink great wine, eat great food. Is that what the future looks like? What's what's next? Um you know, I'm 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 working with some wineries in Armenia, mm -hmm. uh, helping them understand the wine industry here. Oh. Helping them um see what they could do to get their wines here. Yeah. Not personally go out and sell the wines, but you know, direct them on what they need to do, make sure they don't get any bad advice. And, um, you know, it's, it's my contribution giving back. I was going to say, it's that paid forward. Yeah. And you're actually getting to do almost in a scaled way because there's sure. wineries. I know from traveling a bit to Europe myself, they're really, they admire United States. They admire specifically Napa Valley, Sonoma, the business model has been sure. established here and they are looking for guidance and they're looking for some gateways absolutely some opportunity and somebody like you that's so well versed in the language of business and selling and such like that and really promoting the brand yeah. um, and i have no vested interest except to help them out yeah i'm not going to benefit financially or any other way by them doing better yeah. so they're like okay so that would be bad i'm like yeah or that person we shouldn't work with no I'm trying to make sure that there someone is helping them along the way. I've had a lot of people help me along my my career. Yeah. Uh, people who have guided me well. Um, you know, I go back. I'm like, Jean never hired me to do national sales for her when I was 27 years old and working at a distributor for seven months. Where would I be today? Yeah. I don't know. So a lot of people perceive the, again the wine industry in a very romanticized kind of euphoric fashion. And I'm sure you and I both ask, get asked questions on occasion um, or musings, I should say, gee, I wish I had your life. I wish I had this pathway. So for those that are serious about it, that want to segue into the wine world because they're so fascinated by it, could you give them some advice how to get started and maybe a word of caution as well of what it really is? 
Um, sure. Word of caution first. Don't trust everybody. <laughs> right. Um, uh, there's a saying. It says, uh, you know, listen to people's advice, uh, but be careful whose advice you buy. Um, but find out what it is you want to do. I mean, eventually there's a, there's a hobby, a passion part of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's a business part of it. It has to support you. Yeah. Now, it's not going to make you a millionaire. Um, it could, but probably not. Um, but it's a great life. And so if you like sales, work for a distributor. If you like marketing, market for a distributor, a retailer, a restaurant, or a winery. Um, it, there, there, if you like human resource, but you love wine, you can do human resources for distributors, restaurants, uh, retailers. Mm -hmm. Take what you love and see how you can uh, mold it and meld it with the wine industry because there's ways yeah. to take what you're good at and combine it with your passion. Very so nice. don't necessarily say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to go from being an attorney to uh, I'm going to go sell wine on the streets. That could work. I know two amazing women that have done that. <laughs> um, but I think their passion was wine, first and foremost. Yeah. Right? Because um, they speak really passionately about their wine world, but not so passionately about their law world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you got to do something that works for you, that you enjoy. Because if you wake up every day and you are miserable with your job, do something, change it. I think that's a great piece of advice and we could all continuously learn from that because I think as humans we always evolve, yeah. hopefully, and in that new iteration of our own selves, if you acknowledge something about you that's working and not working, sometimes it's not working is more instructive mm -hmm. than what is, then you are empowered to change it. Absolutely. And hopefully you'll come across people like our men that is very willing and generous with his time and goodwill. And um, I don't want you guys contacting him as a result of this. You <laughs> can, you but... can. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's what we do. Yeah. I think that's part of the fabric yeah. of this community. They really embrace you. Sure. And they, you know, facilitate you kind of discovering that self-discovery process. Yeah. So that's one of the most beautiful things about the wine industry, I must say. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so no, much. Thank You've you. It's certainly been a, such a pleasure and delight and learning opportunity to sit down with you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson. We'll see you again next week.